Experience the joy of running in the new Triumph 22 from Saucony, the original running brand. Stacked with luxury foam cushioning, Triumph 22 turns miles into smiles with the ultimate blend of comfort and energy return. Shop Triumph 22 at Saucony.com. That's S-A-U-C-O-N-Y.com. I first started running about 15 years ago as a way to quit smoking. Back then, my running clothes were very Rocky Balboa, so sweatpants, sweatshirt, Anyone who goes hiking or trail running knows that it's a lot easier and a lot more fun when you're wearing the right gear. Jonji makes performance apparel that'll take you farther on your runs and hikes. They have this merino wool hoodie that I wore on multiple trail runs this weekend. It's soft, it's warm, and most importantly, it does not get stinky when you get stinky. Another reason to love Jonji is that they donate 2% of all sales towards clean water projects, raising nearly $1 million so far. Head to johnji.com to find your new favorite trail wear, outdoors accessories, and essentials. And use the code OUTSIDE for 10% off at johnji.com. That's J-A-N-J-I.com with the code OUTSIDE for 10% off. When I was a little kid, my whole family, grandparents included, packed into a Dodge Caravan and went on a two-week road trip to Wyoming. We saw the rodeo in Cody, a grizzly bear in Yellowstone National Park, and an epic thunderstorm near Devil's Tower. On that trip, I fell in love with the West and the natural world. This might sound cheesy, but it kind of made me who I am today. Wyoming has it all. Breathtaking hikes, kid-friendly museums, two of the coolest national parks in the country. The truth lies West. Discover yours at TravelWyoming.com. This is Outside In. This is Outside In. Warm coffee voice. <laughs> New vibe. Hey, this is Outside In, a podcast about the natural world and how we use it. I'm Nate Hedgie, here with our producer, Justine Paradise. Hello. Hey. So it is high time that we open up our listener mailbag, also known as the outside inbox. And this time the theme is green. Do you remember that old movie, The Fifth Element, Nate? Uh, yes. I love that movie. I think it's great. It's classic, classic, right? Yeah. So if you haven't seen it, it's like a trippy, post-apocalyptic, Blade Runner, but make it weird, space movie. That's a great, that's a great description <laughs> of it. And I, I bring it up because in the world of that movie, the slang word for cool is green so like instead of stay cool it'd be like stay green <laughs> so this is perfectly demonstrated in this scene in which intergalactic radio host ruby rod played by chris tucker is chastising our main character corbin dallas played by bruce willis yeah he's chastising corbin dallas for not performing well enough during their interview a few minutes before it was bad it, it had nothing no fire no energy no nothing you know i have a show to run here you know mm-hmm. and it must pop 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 it must be green okay Okay. I love that. That is a uh, that is a vibe that I want to carry into our uh, environmental podcast. I think it's important that you do. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so the the reason I actually mentioned it though is the um, do you think that the reason that like the word for for cool in that movie is green is that it's a post apocalyptic world, so there's no green on the planet, so green is like rare and special. Oh, or is it yeah. because it's referring to money, like the green of cash? It's probably referring to money. I didn't come here to play Pumbaa on the radio. So tomorrow from 5 to 7, you're going to give yourself a hand. Green? 
Okay. So fifth element might be referring to money. But today's questions, which came from listeners, we are talking about green a little bit more literally, right? We got a lot of plant questions today. All righty. Like Ruby Rod, I got a show to run here, and it has got to pop. It has got to pop. Green for go. Let us start with the question that you answered for us. Sure. So this one came from Alyssa. She asked, how slash why do some plants stay green in the winter? And what is the benefit of being evergreen? That's a great question. Yeah, and it, it might be obvious, but um, let's quickly define evergreen real quick. Okay. Uh, this is a plant that keeps its leaves year after year or growing season after growing season. Mm-hmm. And you can compare that to a deciduous plant, which sheds its leaves every year. I feel like the first thing that I think of when I hear the word evergreen is conifer, right? Yeah, totally. The trees with needle-like leaves. So, you know, maybe a common one for most people are pines. This is Georgia Silvera-Siemens. She is an urban forester by training. But you also have broadleaf trees that are evergreen. So I'm in New York City, so a broadleaf tree that's evergreen would be a holly. Georgia is the founder of the local nature lab in New York City. And when I asked her, what's the benefit of being evergreen? Her answer really surprised me because I'd assumed that the answer would be because evergreens retain their leaves all year, that means that they also photosynthesize all year. Right. Like all winter, maybe evergreens would be able to keep making plant food, keep turning sunlight and carbon dioxide into sugar. Yeah, but Georgia said not necessarily. It's not to say that there is no photosynthesis happening, but you have to think about it from the tree's perspective. In order to photosynthesize, the tree has to open the pores on its leaves to take in carbon dioxide. Mm -hmm. But that makes it vulnerable to losing water. So evergreens aren't photosynthesizing as much in the winter as you might think. There's this like balancing act, like how much do I photosynthesize versus how much water can I afford to lose? Instead of thinking of being evergreen as a benefit, it's more like it's just a different life strategy than being deciduous. Hmm. Each strategy involves trade-offs as to where plants spend their energy. So for evergreens, they're keeping their leaves for more than one season, so they tend to put a lot into them. That's an investment. So they're sort of expensively made. Evergreen leaves are often thick with a protective waxy coating. Sometimes with these very exquisite, resilient, needle-like shapes, which minimize surface area. So like spending money on a really expensive sweater, you know you're going to wear it for many years. Versus like fast fashion, which is inexpensively made, and the next season there's going to be something else for you to wear. That's an amazing analogy. I know. Although Georgia did make it clear that she's not saying that one is better or worse than the other in this comparison. No, not at all. Just a different life strategy. That makes sense. Yeah, no judgment. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, a big investment can be a calculated risk, but it's still a risk. And look at it another way. It can be an advantage to shed your leaves every year because maybe a big storm batters your leaves or a hungry caterpillar is coming into your neck of the woods. Yeah, and deciduous trees get to start fresh every spring, but evergreens don't. The impact of losing your leaf before its renewal cycle is much more significant for evergreens. Evergreens do eventually shed their leaves, though. They just don't shed them all in a single season. 
And that shedding cycle will vary across species. Like an eastern white pine might be two to three years. There's another species that is somewhere maybe every 10 years. And for example, the needles of the bristlecone pine can last for half a century. Those trees, by the way, are my favorite trees. I love oh, really? bristlecone pines. Yeah, <laughs> they're, they're like ancient. I think they're among some of the oldest trees in the world. Some of them. So cool. I think you can look at a tree and see it as the embodiment of its evolution and the kind of 3D resources that have been available to that species. That is so cool. A tree as an embodiment of its evolution. Isn't it so nice? Yeah. It's not easy being green. Having to spend each day the color of the leaves. When I think it might be nicer being red or yellow. Oh, you just couldn't resist that outro, <laughs> could you? I mean, it's not easy being green. I mean, evergreen. <laughs> what can I say? Let's pull out our next question. And this one was reported by the greenest member of our outside in team, Zhang Yun Han. And by greenest, well, Zhang Yun, this is actually your first time on the show. Hey there, and yes, it is. It's very exciting. So today we've got a call from a listener out of Cincinnati, Ohio. Hi, my name is Ned. And Ned wants to get the record straight on turf grass. I heard that it's really terrible for a lot of reasons, uh, one of them being the water usage, but I'm curious. Does turf grass inherently use up a lot of water? Or does that only apply to irrigated turf grass? Thanks. Just to be clear, Nate, we're talking about real turf grass and not the artificial kind. Right, yeah. I'm I'm no expert, but I don't think plastic grass needs any water at all. No, they don't. So there are a lot of varieties of grass, and they're categorized by the kind of climate that they're suited for. There's cool season grass, warm, warm season crossover. You get the gist. Yeah. And some do need more water than others to survive. But it's not like you have to have water for your lawn. Mm -hmm. It's just that, you know, if you don't and you don't get enough rainfall, your lawn could be patchy or brown or just straight up die. <laughs> so a lot of grass is irrigated to keep it green and healthy. In fact, lawn grass is the most irrigated crop in the U.S., even more than wheat and corn. Yes, I, I actually, I know this. I did a story on lawns last year, and it's it's just wild to realize how much grass there is. For sure. So to learn about irrigation and grass, I reached out to Dr. Rubab Sahur, who is a postdoctoral research fellow at the Desert Research Institute. Dr. Sahur says there are two common ways to irrigate plants in general. There's a typical sprinkler system and drip irrigation systems, which feed water more slowly and precisely. Its efficiency is higher than the sprinkler irrigation system. So we would maybe save water by 10% or 15% because of their irrigation efficiency. Does anybody use drip irrigation for, for grass? Yeah, that's the thing. Dr. Sahur says we actually don't, so we're left with an inefficient method for watering grass. Even with the finest irrigation system, your grass consumes relatively more water than a smart landscape. So Dr. Sahur actually takes this question 
a further step two. So she digs into what environmentalists are calling water smart landscapes. Those are landscapes that conserve or recycle water and keep places cooler and more efficiently than others, which is super important because in some areas, drought is threatening water supplies. Oh, absolutely. Like where I live in the West, like stuff is getting way hotter, way drier because of climate change. Yeah. And that's exactly what Dr. Sahur tackles. To compensate for all the concrete structures that we have, we need to have vegetation to mitigate those heating challenges. So grass can help keep cities cooler, but it doesn't provide any shade and it takes a lot of water. Mm -hmm. So a smarter landscape for dry, hot cities out west, Dr. Seher says, would use trees, shrubs, and bushes, which provide a little less cooling than grass, but do provide shade for people and take less water to grow. Plus, they just look cool. I really think that uh, zero-scaped landscapes you know, with the trees and the shrubs and everything else like that. I just think it looks cooler than grass. I mean, there's more to look at than just a patch of grass, in my mind. <laughs> exactly. So, exactly. Anyway. Yeah. Coming up shortly, why exactly do humans see so many subtle shades of green? But first, before we break, I want to remind you that this is a public radio show. It's free to listen. It's free to send in questions. We absolutely love answering them. One recent listener review said that the show is, quote, very entertaining and educational, respectful of the issues while having fun. That is so nice to hear because we work hard to strike that balance. It takes a lot of care and energy, and we are so glad that it resonates. If you agree, please help keep us going. You can support the show by heading to outsideinradio.org slash donate. And thank you so much. We'll be right back. Want to connect with a family member who doesn't speak your language? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning through an intuitive process. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. And with a lifetime membership, you have access to all 25 offered languages. Get started today. Visit rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 to get 50% off your lifetime membership now. That's rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 for 50% off. Hi, I'm Lale Aracoglu, host of Women Who Travel. Each story from our guests and listeners is totally unique and utterly personal. We love hearing about your first impressions when visiting someplace new. My first trip to the Patagonia region was on the Argentine side. I couldn't believe the expansive territory. It's like being in Tibet. The emptiness and the harshness really, I found transformative. Or a story told when safely back on dry land. You know, things happened every single day. I ran out of gas on a jet ski in the middle of the ocean. And I was like, what if a sea creature comes to eat me? But then I'm delusional. I was like, I'll make friends with it and it won't eat me. And maybe I'll ride that back to shore. That's how it works. (laughs) Join me, Lale Arakoglu, every week for more adventures on women who travel, wherever you listen to your podcasts. Welcome back to Outside In. I'm Nate Hedgie. 
And I'm Justine Paradise. And today, the team is opening up the outside inbox, answering listener questions on the theme of green. The color, the concept, the quality, how it's not so easy being green, or at least evergreen. And our producer, Felix Poon, joined me to answer this next one for us. So we got a question from Colin in Brandon, Manitoba in Canada. Do most city buildings have green roofs? And if not, why not? I imagine he's probably not talking about roofs that are like literally painted green, right? No. He's talking about green roofs, which are basically a roof covered with plants instead of your typical asphalt or rubber roof. Okay. It could be grass, a bunch of trees, or even an urban farm. Mm -hmm. And the concept goes way back. They were used to help keep buildings warm as far back as the Vikings. They may even go as far back as the Hanging Gardens of Babylon in 600 B.C., one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. Wow. So we were like being like super sustainable way back then. I mean, we were doing a lot of things more sustainable back then. (laughs) (laughs) But true. No oil. Yeah. Anyways, that was Kate England, the city of Boston's director of green infrastructure. And Kate says green roofs have tons of benefits. Green roofs help to cool and reduce uh, air conditioning costs. They reduce urban heat island effect. Which is why climate experts say that green roofs are a key climate solution for slowing global warming. Right. They even help with storm drainage and providing habitat for migrating birds. Okay, but back to our listeners' original question. Like, do most city buildings have green roofs nowadays? Well, it depends on the city, but finding an actual percentage is a little bit hard. Boston, for example, has about 100,000 square feet of green roofs. But like most cities, it doesn't track how much total roof coverage it has. So it's hard to know. So you didn't like go to a map of Boston and like measure the total square footage of all the roofs in Boston, (laughs) Felix? I thought we paid you the big bucks to be a reporter. I did not do that. But (laughs) I did call up someone named Abraham Wu. He's a researcher at the Future Cities Lab that's based in Zurich, Switzerland. So we've used images uh, captured by satellites or drones, and we did a test for 20 cities uh, using an AI algorithm. That's kind of cool. So basically, in 2021, Abraham used AI software to look at these satellite images of cities to count all of the roofs and to count how many of them are green. Mm -hmm. So in one region of Zurich... Up to 16% of the buildings there had green roofs. And in one part of Berlin, Germany... That's about 10 to 15%. And in a section of New York City, there's about 8%. All right. But like, Felix, what exactly qualifies as a green roof? I mean, does it have to be all green or can it just have a couple of bushes? Well, New York City counts a building's roof as a green roof if at least 50% of the roof space is covered by vegetation. Mm -hmm. As for the AI, it's definitely not perfect. I cross-checked his project with Google Maps satellite imagery And it didn't take me long to find roofs that were not correctly labeled as green roofs. There's a reporter doing reporting stuff. (laughs) So are there any other statistics out there that you think are more accurate? Yeah, the best estimate I could find in my reporting when it comes to the greenest, roofiest cities in North America, the percentage is just 1%. Oh, I need that horn that goes... (laughs) Just 1%. I mean, like, there could be so many benefits. You think this would be more common practice by now? Yeah. So there are a couple of reasons why they're not more common. First is that with older buildings, they might not have the loading capacity to carry that extra weight. The second is that they're more expensive to pay for up front. 
even though in the long run you save money because green roofs last longer. Hmm. But we should expect to see them more often with a lot of cities offering tax rebates and some cities even mandating that all new buildings must have green roofs. Cambridge, Massachusetts became the first New England city to pass a mandate. But even here in Boston, Kate says she's noticing a shift. The technology is getting cheaper and lighter, and she says developers are showing more interest in them now. It really gives her hope that someday... When you fly over the city of Boston from above, you'll be seeing these beautiful green spaces on top of our buildings. I really love that vision. Like, imagine that possible future of green spaces on rooftops everywhere. I think about that a lot, actually. I was recently in Seattle, and I was just like, oh, man, it'd be so cool if there was just, like, draping vines coming from, like, the mm. tops of these houses or these these buildings. It's just really fun to imagine that world, the society we might build if we put a lot of climate solutions into action. Like, imagine living in a city with tons of modern, fast, efficient public transit. It is fun to imagine, like, what is what is the sort of positive outcomes of climate change, like... What if we had a really super responsive electrical grid where people got alerts that were like, you know, tons of solar energy available right now. It's a good time of day to plug in your stuff, you know. We'd be able to plan our entire recording sessions around when the best available energy is. Yeah, just more connected to how stuff works, maybe. It's fun to think about. I would love to see just more wild parks in cities, you know? Mm -hmm. Like, I really love, it's one of my favorite things about a city is when you enter a space that's just trees everywhere and you can kind of hear cars in the background, but for the most part, it's like you're in nature in the middle of a city. I would just love to see more greenways flowing through cities. I live in a a very small city here in New Hampshire, but I lived in Montreal last summer and there's a mountain in the middle of the city. And during that big heat wave last summer, I took a hike up the mountain and it I mean, it's so like well-known, but it was amazing how quickly yeah. the temperature dropped inside the forest. And I was like, oh, my God, thank goodness for yeah. this forest. I bet it's been cooling down the city in ways I don't even realize. Absolutely. All right. On to our last question of the day. We received this submission during one of our Instagram callouts. This one came from Bethany, who asked, why did our eyes evolve to see so many shades of green? Let's pull in producer Jessica Hunt, who answered this one for us. Let's talk first about how we perceive color and then about the evolutionary benefits. Nate, what do you know about rods and cones? I've heard of them. I know that they're in my eyeballs. Excellent. So rods and cones are photoreceptor cells on our retina. And photo is the Greek prefix for light. So what that means is that these are the cells that are sensitive to light, Rods are for low-light situations, and cones send signals to the brain in bright light. Then the brain decodes and interprets those signals into what we think of as color, and specifically red, green, or blue. Only those three colors. Humans have evolved to be trichromatic, and that means we build all of the colors that we see out of a combination of just those three. RGB. Yeah, computer monitors are in RGB. Right. And if you've ever used a color wheel, an art class, or just mixed paints, you know that combinations of primary colors can make secondary colors. And that's where we get, like, oranges and purples and yellows. Your photoreceptors are doing that same thing. What our listener sees as shades of green 
are greens mixed with colors from our other two cones. Green plus a little red, and maybe you get a greenish yellow, a plant that needs like a little watering. Or you add a little blue, and you get more of a shade of turquoise. I imagine that there is some benefit for us seeing so many shades of green. And I'm going to guess, Jessica, it has something to do with the fact that there's a lot of green on this old planet. Yes. And so to talk about the evolutionary part of it, I spoke with Adriana Briscoe. She's a professor of evolutionary biology at UC Irvine. One of the earliest hypotheses for why there's a benefit to having red-green color vision is that it allows primates to forage for red conspicuous fruits against green foliage. Red fruits against green foliage. So we're able to spot all of our strawberries and our raspberries. Tomatoes. All the yummy stuff. But as we know, ripe red fruit is not always available. Sometimes they fall back onto eating um, foliage like leaves and young reddish leaves or flowers often have nutritional benefit that is potentially advantageous compared to old tough leaves. But there's a little wrinkle. Not all humans have evolved to have three color receptors. Some people have only two, the blue and the green or the blue and the red. Color blindness is much more common among men than it is women. And I've read different estimates, but it's somewhere between 7 and 8% of the total population. That's a lot more than I thought it would be. Scientists think that those people who only have two types of photoreceptors have an evolutionary benefit of their own. It allows them to be better at detecting and capturing, for example, camouflaged insects under low illumination. You're in a group and one part of your troop can detect the ripe fruit against the green leaves and another one can find these delicious protein-rich insects that are maybe um, less conspicuous that there would be potentially a a benefit to everybody in in the group. That's kind of like a superhero power. Yeah. In addition to detecting camouflaged insects or, you know, different kinds of fruit, someone who doesn't have that red-green combination of photoreceptors might be better at detecting movement, like a snake moving through the foliage. Whoa. That's another ability that benefits the group. And Adriana explained, we're, of course, not seeing color in isolation. Pattern, shape size, movement, depth. So the color green is important, but there are lots of other factors at play in our perception of the world. Just as a reminder, we are always accepting questions about the natural world, climate change, science, anything even loosely connected to the environment. You don't have to adhere to a theme, but the prompt we're working on for an upcoming listener question segment is the deeps. The deeps. So think, what questions do you have about caves, geothermal Mm -hmm. energy, deep sea, species that dig, mines, Earth's core, just life underground generally? Deepness. Think Deepness. deepness. There are three ways to send in your question. Number one... Call our hotline and leave a voicemail. The number is 1-844-GO-OTTER. Number two, you can send a voice memo to our email, outsidein at nhpr.org. Or number three, social media. You can follow us on Instagram. Every month or two, we post a call out for questions in our stories. You can find us there at Outside In Radio. 
This episode of Outside In was reported and produced by Justine Paradise, Zhang Yun Han, Felix Poon, and Jessica Hunt. It was edited by Taylor Quimby and Justine Paradise. Special thanks to Stephen Peck. Music came from Spring Gang, Mole Life, Apollo, Auto Hacker, Blue Dot Sessions, and Chris Zabriskie. Outside In's theme music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. Our executive producer is Rebecca Lavoie. Outside In is a production of New Hampshire Public Radio. <laughs>